I invite you to turn your attention to the word of the Lord as I read Psalm 119, verses 105 through 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to this Sunday with possibly mixed emotions. There might be feelings of joy. There might be feelings of pain. So, Lord, we are going to turn our attention to your word this morning, drawing from the promises you have given to your people that we may live according to them. Lord, we lift up our pastor and his wife as they return from vacation that there are travel mercies upon them. We pray for the basketball camp that the gospel is clearly preached to these young people. We pray for those at Cooperstown Bible Camp uh, this week, Lord, that um, you work through their lives and work through the counselors uh, to preach your truth. Lord, we pray for all the health ailments in our church. Lord, we are a broken people in needing you, the great physician. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you, and as we draw from the fount of your word, may our hearts be filled and flooded with joy. In your name, amen. We live in a very interesting time as Christians. When we open up our Bibles, we read of the promises of God, and our hearts are flooded with joy. We are happy to read scripture. We are happy to know his promises toward us. But if we turn on the news or even just look at what happened this past week, it seems that that joy sort of fizzles almost immediately. We sit here and say, well, if God is so good and this world is good that he created, why does this not feel right? Why does this feel wrong? Why am I dealing with this? Why am I ailing this way? Why are these things happening to me? It has been almost two millennia since Christ has ascended into heaven and he has not returned. And things seem to only be getting worse. We're en route to political persecution and continuously struggle with strange and false teachings. There are those who proclaim peace when we know for a fact there is no peace today. And it causes us to ask these questions. Well, if this is how the world is, is the command of holiness still in effect? Are we still supposed to live holy lives, though there's unholiness all around us? Is Christ still Lord and Master with all this evil that is surrounding us? Will he actually return? And I think at the root of this, it comes to the question, has the Lord failed his promises toward us? Thankfully, we are not alone in this ever-present struggle, nor is it new to the church. The early church endured political persecution and distress from false teachers, and they possibly asked similar questions to these we just asked this morning. 
This is where Peter's letters to these believers come into wondrous view to these questions. And this morning, we are going to be going through 2 Peter, and we shall see upon looking at all three chapters, what we know bears indivisible weight to how we live, even though it doesn't feel so good. So at this time, I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter, as we will not have verses on the screen. And as you're turning to 2 Peter, which in your pew Bibles is on page 1079, again, that's page number 1079, it will be helpful to understand a few items of 2 Peter before we begin. When we read 2 Peter, I've, after reading this along with 1 Peter, it is hard to separate these two letters from each other. Though there is three to four years that is separating them, we can read 2 Peter as a continuation or an epilogue to 1 Peter where 1 Peter writes a lot of salvation past with Christ on the cross and connects to salvation present, which is the middle earth we live in today. 2 Peter's focus kind of starts right away at where we presently are at to where we are going, to the presence of God. And this is written a few years or moments before Peter's execution for preaching the gospel. So when we read 2 Peter, we are reading the parting words of Peter to these believers in Northern Asia Minor. And his tone here is one of sober urgency. And we as fellow saints should take great care into hearing the word of the Lord in Peter's parting letter. And how he writes is very interesting. If you read Peter compared to Paul, you'll notice that Paul goes in a very logical format. He, he has a certain flow and he follows two tasks. But Peter does this thing where he kind of goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What he does in these letters, these two letters, especially 2 Peter, is he writes that our theological convictions directly impact our practical living. He's very pastoral in this letter because he seeks to show, okay, this is how this doctrine impacts this element of life, and this element of life is informed by this doctrine, and he just keeps going back and forth. But not only is it pastoral and very caring, it is a very strong letter. In three short chapters, we are given solid truth, solid exhortation, and solid hope. And though there is much vibrancy and back and forth in Peter's writing, the urgency of Peter is connected to knowing a solid and sobering foundation. And it comes back to this. Well, what is this foundation? The promises of God. We shall see that this morning as well as we walk through the entirety of 2 Peter. We will see how Peter draws our attention by way of reminder to the promises of God. And as we finish, we hope to see how knowing the promises of God draws implications for our life, godliness, and our assurance. And in order to do this properly, contextually, and biblically, as well as build a proper framework for understanding the entirety of 2 Peter, we must take note of three major themes Peter presents that comes from the knowledge of the promises of God. And we have to ask, well, what are these themes? The first of which is holy living. Christians live a life that is holy or set apart to the Lord. Though they live in this present world that is perishing, their lives are marked by the power of God and continue firmly and effectively to the very end. And the first part about holy living, we need to understand, it is by God's power. This holy living comes strictly and solely by the power of God. We read this in verse, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This repeats a lot of what Peter speaks of in 1 Peter. And he goes to show that the Christian's holiness is not a mere duty that is begrudging to carry out, but it is a privilege and a right as a child of God. Holiness is a gift from God for his glory, which is ultimately for our good. When we talk about God's glory, our good is completely enveloped into that. There is nothing that the Lord does for his glory that will not benefit his people. And there's another thing we need to understand about holiness. There is not one aspect of holiness that is inaccessible for us to pursue as Christians. Not one aspect is out of the reach of pursuit. And this can only and solely be done if the holy of holies makes his people holy. We saw that in verses three through four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We must know that if, that we are to be made holy before we can begin to live holy. We must be made holy by the holy of holies in order to live a holy life. If we must live holy to be holy, so if we flip those around, if we have to live holy to actually be holy, our holiness would not be from God. It would be from ourselves. And that holiness cannot save us. Because as much as we try, as much as we seek to attain the level of God's holiness, we fall short each and every time. And it's not that we fulfill 99% of it. It's that we don't even come close to even beginning. The holy of holies, God himself, must make us holy in order for us to live a holy life. And that is what Peter is telling us. And he's saying that is a promise of God, that he has made you holy and he has enabled you to live a holy life. In essence, our life in Christ is in fact holiness. To be purchased by God, to be made holy, is the power of God being displayed in the gospel. Because where we were under the power of sin and death, he has transferred us into the kingdom of light and of righteousness. The power of God is not making us feel better. The power of God is making us righteous as his son. Crediting his son's righteousness to us. That's the power of God, and that holiness comes from the promises of God. Yet the holiness in the Christian is not momentary, but it is continuous. We continue to read in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, For this very reason, 
make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Due to the promises of God listed in verses 3 through 4, Christians make every effort to continue in the qualities of holiness they have been given in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And the first thing that we notice in verse 4, we are partakers of the divine nature. How are we partakers of the divine nature? That is through the Holy Spirit. Each and every true, genuine believer is given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our souls and a seal for our hearts for when we approach his presence. You cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. Though we are partakers, it is also progressive. We see in verse 5, Peter says, make every effort. In verse 8, increasing. In verse 10, be diligent. In verse 12, he says, I remind you. In verse 13, he says, to stir you up. So what does holiness have to do with our assurance? A lot of times we hear ways of, well, if you want to be assured, just look at what you've done. But the truth is continued holiness points to our assurance. It is not the basis of it. Continued holiness points to our assurance that we are God's people. In chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Look at that. He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. He's not saying to receive it. He's saying confirm it because you already have it. Your holiness points to the fact that God has given you his spirit that you may live a holy life. Our holiness comes out of our assurance of salvation. That's what we read for this very reason in verse 5. And our holiness points toward the assurance we have received. You read verse 8, for these qualities are yours. He said, make every effort, but he says they're yours. These qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is because we know we have been saved. We, lived a, we live a holy life. It is because we know the work of Christ has been credited to us by the Father through the Spirit. The holiness we we pursue is not out of aspirations or vain hope of trying to be a better person, but it is out of the solid hope due to God's promise. Holiness walks in the promises of God. And the more we pursue holiness, the more we do, the more we shall similar, say similar to St. Augustine, O oh Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. And where it is by God's power one is made holy and enabled to live holy, this holiness does not perish, but it leads us to the eternal kingdom of God. In chapter 1, verse 11, Peter says this, For in this way, in this way of holiness, which has been given to us by the divine power of God, for in this way, 
there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way into heaven is holiness and to be perfect without blemish, without spot. And we know we can't do that. But the Lord has made the way, the truth, and the life through his Son. Through Christ is the only way to enter into the promised land. This holiness is effective due to the truth it has been received through. Not felt through, but the truth it has been received through. If it was a knowledge and truth of man, its effectiveness would only last as long as we live, which isn't very long. It's only a 60 to 80 year hope. But because it's from God, who has no beginning and has no end, it is eternal. In verse 12, therefore I intend to all, intend always to remind you, we always are in need of reminder because the Lord is eternal and we are temporary bodies. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And before we think we got this down, it is wise to know we are always in need of reminder. We always need to be reminded of this. Peter says in verse 13 through 15, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that my, after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. The more we live in this world, the more reason we will be given to live a holy life to the very end. And what is that end? The presence of the holy of holies. The presence of God. Holiness guides us toward the promises of God. We live in accordance to the knowledge of the promises of God. We do this because we know the Lord is holy. Christians live holy lives in this present world, though it may not feel the greatest. Due to the knowledge of God's powerful promises, believers recall the items of holiness and firmly and effectively continue holy living to the very end. But how can we recall these things? How do we recall these items of holiness that Peter says? If we continue in verse 16 of chapter 1, Peter says this, the scriptures... It is the scriptures by which we recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice has, was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am, I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In these verses, along with later on in 2 Peter in chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, 
We see it as the apostles' teaching according to the scriptures that enables believers to recall these things. This is how the Lord has providentially worked toward his saints. He has given us his word that we can recall everything he has revealed to us. But what's interesting in 2 Peter is that Peter spends his time in his second theme making contrast. He doesn't really give this overarching, amazing second chapter of the revelations of God necessarily, but he brings it in contrast with false teaching. And these false teachers aren't something that he's expecting to have happened. These are false teachers that are presently within the congregation of these churches. And what he makes mention of is that these false teachers have come in after the, the apostles. This is what we read in chapter 2, verse 1. They bring new understandings to the apostles' teaching. That's what we saw previously in chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. And they live increasingly different from the bride of Christ. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And what Peter does is he provides a historical, theological, and practical contrast of false teachers to genuine Christianity. And in his doctrinal statement of and against false teachers, Peter brings an historical account of false teachers according to the scriptures. We see this in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, where he, set, he talks of the fall of the spiritual realm. He talks about the worldwide flood of Noah. And he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. And later on in chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, he speaks of the way of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet who decided to give prophecies out of greed for money. And then at the very end of chapter 2, Peter references a proverb, but is also repeated by Christ in Matthew 7, 6, between dogs and swine. And by giving these five historical examples... Peter shows the greater implication of these examples in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. If you read with me, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Peter is showing in all these historical examples that the Lord is faithful and unchanging in his nature and his character. He's reminding them that the Lord does not change, has not changed, and will never, ever change amidst these false teachers' claims. Peter's reminding them that the Lord, throughout history to today, to the very future, has kept his promises. And as also in these historical examples, Peter shows these false teachers are historically and presently located amongst the believers. It's very interesting for us to note that because a lot of times we talk about, well, what's outside of us? What's outside of us? What's outside our walls? What's outside our walls? But Peter says, no, they're among you. This is not only a historical fact, but this is a present fact. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, that is the people of Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And later on in verse 13, he reads this, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. And we have to make sure that we understand that when 
Peter is saying, while they feast with you, he's speaking of the Lord's Supper. He's speaking of these people maybe even taking communion with you. We might have to ask, well, why would Peter tell them of this? Wouldn't they already know this? Doesn't this seem a little bit too drab? Doesn't this seem a little bit too not encouraging? But the truth is, in a sense, Peter is comforting these believers with a biblical history and theology of false teachers, reminding them their struggles are not particularly unique as the Lord has promised in his word that false teachers have always risen to cause trouble against God's people and that the Lord also promises in his word he will deal justly with them. And we might ask, well, we're in the 21st century. Things obviously have had to change. Of course, things have changed. The general state of the human heart, along with the Lord, has not. If that has changed, then the Lord has failed his promises. So how can we know who these false teachers are and how can this help us today? It is out of the history that Peter shows the contrast of theology and lifestyle between false and genuine believers and teachers. False teachers didn't mark themselves as false. They marked themselves as genuine. And we shall notice that there is no specific name given to these people, but we are given definitive markers of theology and practicality to help identify these people. I'm not promoting that we go on a witch hunt. But this is the word of the Lord, and we should be taking great care to understanding these texts just as much as the positive promises. And what we will be looking at is the two major doctrinal errors, or more appropriately, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1, the destructive heresies. And we're going to see how Peter does his back-and-forth motion of how it promotes ungodly living. Remember, we said the theological convictions impact and guide how we live. So Peter is doing this in the negative light. How is it that this false doctrine promotes false living or ungodly living? And the first element that he brings up is that corrupted revelation results in greed. Well, where does he talk about corrupted revelation? Well, we have to go back a little bit in chapter 1. And these false teachers, we have to understand, they know the Old Testament and the apostles' teaching. But what they do instead of going back to that, they come in and say, I have a word from the Lord. We read in chapter 1, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And this was happening as the apostles were writing down the inspired word of God. It was at this time these false teachers asserted their own authority by giving new revelations or new understandings that never or rarely even pointed to Scripture. It never even confirmed the apostles' teaching. We read in verse, chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These false teachers' claims sought to assert their own authority within the community of the church. Where genuine Christians turned to the teachings of the law, prophets, gospels, and the apostles, there were those who sought to bring a quote-unquote fresh word from the Lord and claim that authority. I have received this special private revelation and you need to listen to me because this is from the Lord and you need to do what I say. And this corrupted revelation they presented resulted in the form of greed. Chapter 2, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 
These supposed revelations are in fact false words and destructive heresies. This revelation feeds their greed for power and promotion of position. Or maybe to emphasize how wicked smart they are. Look at how well I think of these things. Look at this special knowledge that I have. But you can't reach my knowledge yet because you haven't had my experience yet. They would say anything to satisfy their greedy little hearts. And they do this, as Peter says, as they are in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. They are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. They continue in the sin of demons. They continue in the sin of the ancient world. They continue in the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they continue in the sin of Balaam. Ultimately, this is what it comes down to. Their revelation repeats the words of the serpent in Genesis 3. Did God really say? In church, we do not need a fresh word from the Lord. We need to see the word of the Lord freshly. But this isn't the only doctrinal error they made, the destructive heresy they made. They also had a corrupted lordship that leads to sensuality. Where the apostles along with the early church affirmed and proclaimed the lordship, the mastery, the kingship, the sovereign kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers denied this. Reading chapter 2 verse 1 again. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even This is how far they would go. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And I think it's fair to understand that they may have not outwardly rejected the term Lord, but they fundamentally denied it in understanding, practice, and humble belief. Well, how did they do this? They deny the lordship of Christ by first administering promises to God's people which contradict stated promises of God in Scripture. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. They also deny lordship of Christ by blaspheming angels and pronouncing judgments upon spiritual beings. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. I think it's a very important point to say is that this is also repeated in Jude, and glorious ones is not specifically speaking of angels, but can also be speaking of demons as well as they were angels who were fallen. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Why is that? The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. They also deny lordship by declaring the supposed inactivity of the Lord as if to say similar to those in Zephaniah's prophecy, the Lord shall not do good, but nor shall he do ill. In 2 Peter 3, 4, we see this. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And they also deny lordship by proclaiming salvation, but they do not proclaim God's purchase of their souls. Why is that important? That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that God has purchased us as his own possession, as a people of his own choosing. What Peter says in his first letter, that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. That's the power of God in the gospel. It is not making us feel better. It is the fact that he has purchased us as his own. That's the power of God, changing us from being slaves of darkness to being his sons in his kingdom of light. In essence, these false teachers presented a type of Christ, but not the Christ as presented in the scriptures, who is Lord and instead of submitting to the, the Lord's promises stated in his word, they devise their own, and those promises lead to sensuality. Chapter 2, verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. That means these false teachers will have a following, an actual great following. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. These teachers, along with their followers, engage in unquenchable lusts similar to the historical predecessors that we read in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. They proclaim it is their freedom when it is truly their damnation. And ultimately, they claim to dine at the most royal of tables, yet they return to their vomit and feast upon it. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. At a time, these false teachers may have shown themselves of noble character, but in the secrecy of their hearts, their sin is unquieted and unrestrained. Ultimately, they do not believe the Lord shall hold them accountable and continue in the promises of the serpent, you shall not surely die. Since they promote and trust in their own revelations, They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ for their own. Since they believe in an apathetic savior, they live an insatiable life. It would be incredibly foolish for us to assume then that doctrine is of no importance when Peter clearly lays out destructive heresies lead to a destructive lifestyle and thus will lead to a destructive end. Doctrine does matter. Why? Because of the promise. Peter's final theme Christ is returning. That is a doctrinal truth, but more than that, it is a promise of the Lord. Peter tells us, while the false teachers overlook the truth of God as he has shown in the past, shows in the present, and will show in due time, we must know this promise. Christ is returning. This is how Peter concludes his second letter with the promise that is set before him right before he is about to go be crucified upside down. Christ is returning. In the presentation of his final theme, Peter proclaims Christ's return in remembrance, rebuke, and redemption. Peter reminds them of the truth of God's word. Chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
He desires them to know and remember the promises of God stated in his word for our eternal life. Christ will return. Christ will judge the wicked to the promised punishment. Christ will redeem his people to his promised rest. And Peter isn't bringing them anything new, but he is bringing them the promises of God from old, chapter 3, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Who are the holy prophets? The ones in the Old Testament. Those books. Those letters. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's our New Testament. To look at the entire counsel of Scripture is to look at the entire promises of God to all of his people. Christ's return is necessary for true belief, but it is also necessary for living truthfully as both are a promise of God. And he does this in contrast in chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Our holy doctrine of eschatology or the things that will come, the future things of our faith, our holy doctrine of eschatology promotes holy living, for if we do not live in the knowledge of the promise of Christ's return, we shall find ourselves in the mire of false teachers, in which case Peter brings rebuke. It is through the remembrance of God's promises Peter brings rebuke not only to the theology of the false teachers, or lack thereof, but to the fact that they overlook the truth, because they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The rebuke is not merely that they do not open their Bibles. Obviously they do because they know things are continuing the way since creation. What they do is that they contort and twist the Bible to their own understanding rather than the Bible speaking and informing them of truth. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These false teachers will say, well, this isn't our experience. We haven't experienced this yet, so it obviously isn't coming. By saying that, they're saying the Lord is not faithful, that the Lord has changed. And for these false teachers, experience trumps truth. But Peter's saying, no, truth trumps experience. And by twisting Christ's pure revelation and lordship into destructive heresy, these false teachers deny and overlook the Lord's all-present and all-knowing attributes. Peter tells us, but, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And these false teachers say, yeah, well, that, that's permission. We have this permission. There's nothing to worry about. There's no good. There's no ill that's going to come our way. We're, we're neutral. 
where they see that as permission, genuine Christians regard slowness as the Lord's promise-filled persuasion toward repentance and holiness, which is our verse for this morning, chapter three, verses nine through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Where false teachers overlook truth, genuine Christians dwell upon truth and seek to understand it. Whereas false teachers pursue wickedness, genuine Christians pursue holiness. Why? Why would they do this in a perishing world? Because genuine Christians understand that the Lord's slowness is not a marker of inactivity, but of immeasurable graciousness. Just as the Lord continues his providential promise in the sustaining of creation, he shall keep his promise of return, judgment, and salvation. As the magnolia blooms in spring, so the Lord shall flower each promise of his word in its due time and due season. That is what spring should remind us of. That the heat of summer is coming. Yes, the genuine Christian knows this, believes this, and acts in accordance to this. And the genuine Christian knows the Lord shall redeem his people. And it is this promise of redemption that assures Peter of all these things. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, catch that, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth which, in which righteousness dwells. In that single verse, verse 13, he is connecting our holy living. We live holy because we are approaching holiness himself. There is not one aspect of our holiness that is meaningless. Our holy eschatology only informs and affects our present holy living as it is eternally connected to our holy salvation. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Just as certainly as Christ transfigured before Peter in Matthew 17, so Christ shall appear before all men in that glory, even more, more so. By the promise of holiness, we have been saved. Through the promise of holiness, we are being saved. And in the promise of holiness, we will be saved. Christ's first coming fulfilled God's wrath on his people, people's sin, while his second coming will fulfill God's wrath upon the earth. But today is the day of salvation. As the Lord has yet shown us patience, this is what the scriptures tell us. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
It is the promise of the Lord's coming that should stir our hands towards holiness, assure our hearts of salvation, and submit our minds to the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We live in an interesting time as Christians, a time where God's promises are fulfilled and yet to come. It is in this middle earth we experience the tension between good and evil, between knowledge and feeling, and we understand it's not perfect. And that is intended by God because we do not live by the promises of this world, but by the promises of God as stated in Scripture. The promises come by the knowledge of God which is found solely in the Scriptures. And the Apostle Peter, along with the Scriptures, kept on driving home this. By the knowledge of God's promises, be diligent to live by the qualities of holiness you have received by the power of God. Unlike the false teachers among you, for the Lord our God shall come in due time to judge and to save. We live and wait in accordance to the knowledge of God, his promise of his word. So we come back to the questions we asked at the beginning of this morning. Are the commands of holiness still in effect? Yes, the Lord has kept his promise. The scriptures tell us this. Is Christ still Lord with all this evil around? Yes, the Lord has kept his promise. The scriptures tell us this. Shall Christ return, judge, and save? Yes, the Lord has kept his promise. The scriptures tell us this. This brings us to a verse we need to keep close to our hearts as well as our minds, which is our verse for this morning, which I will read again, 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We know that the Lord has revealed his law. He has revealed his providential dealings toward us. And he has revealed to us his coming glory. We know the end because he has told us. We know the Lord today has been patient with us. The question is, do we know why? One word, repentance. We must know that the Lord's promise-filled patience leads us to repentance and thus a holy life. Paul tells us the same in Romans 2, 4 through 5. In repentance, understand this. We don't like that word, but it is necessary. Repentance is in accordance with the knowledge of God and in proper response to his promises all found in Scripture. It must be said, this repentance is not out of fear of the unknown, but out of the assurance of the promise. God is true, and he is faithful to his word. He shall keep his promises. How can we know this? We know this in the gospel. The fact that fully God became fully man to fully redeem his people, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Beloved, do you know this? That the wrath of God was not nullified over you. 
it was satisfied in the person of Christ. We talk about Christ being born to die, but do we understand what kind of death he died? He experienced hell. He experienced the full wrath of God on the cross for us. That is what he did. It was not that he just died a memorial death. He died the full satisfaction of God's wrath on all of our sin from nature to choices. He experienced our sin and the effects of it. That is what Christ did on the cross. Do we know that? And do we live by that? I'm not just talking repenting before men to make ourselves appear holy. But do we repent in the secrecy of our homes and in the secrecy of our hearts? Why do I say that? Because we need to ask ourselves a question. Do we know that the Lord is all-present and all-knowing? Do we know the secrecy of our hearts will one day be revealed to all, all by his powerful word? And do we know he has shown us immeasurable patience that we may repent and trust in his Son? Christian, that we would just run to the bloody cross of Christ rather than our own bloodlust. Do not overlook the Lord's patience, beloved. He shall keep with his time regardless of your own. He shall come like a thief in the night according to his word. Are you ready? Are you prepared as the bride of Christ, adorned in glory, holiness, and beauty? Or are you busy messing with the rubble that shall be swept away in his wrath? Beloved, today is the day of salvation, but tomorrow could be the day of the Lord's wrath. Take note of this, beloved. Today, the Lord has awoken you out of your slumber, providentially placed you in this pew to receive his word and foretaste of his glory, that you may see his loving kindness toward you in Christ Jesus, that you may repent and put your trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords, who was and is and is to come. So hear this command from the Lord from his heavenly throne. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To him be the glory both now and unto the day of eternity. Amen. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, you have promised us you shall return to judge the living and the dead. You have promised us this by your word. So Lord, may we revel in your promises rather than our promiscuous behavior. May the positive and negative promises you have given us inflame our hearts with joy that you still reign that you are coming again. And to that we respond then, how long, O Lord, how long? Bless our afternoon and bless us as we close in song. Amen.